Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford here with Willie Hicks. Hi, Willie. Good afternoon. So today we get to welcome a guest that I have been trying to get for two years. So Ms. Ann Duncan, she's Chief Information Officer at the United States Department of Energy. In her role at DOE, Ms. Duncan manages the information technology portfolio and modernization. She oversees cybersecurity efforts, leads technology innovation and digital transformation, and enables collaboration across the department. I'm a fan because I've seen Anne present at multiple conferences, and I always, not that the presentations are boring, but sometimes they're boring, but I always find Anne very engaging, very smart. So um, we're really excited to hear Ms. Duncan's insights on the recently released um, National Cybersecurity Strategy. This topic, this next topic, I'm the most excited about the eco-friendly technology in the government space and innovation initiatives coming out of DOE. So welcome to Tech Transforms, Anne. Thank you, Carolyn, it's great to be here. And I guess, I, may I call you Anne? Do you prefer- yes, please do. Okay, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, all right, let's, let's just get it going um, with the first question regarding the recent national cybersecurity strategy. So how does this strategy affect efforts in your department in terms of modernization? Uh, so there's a there's a, a couple things that, that we're doing that tie national cyber strategy. I'll start by saying that my team had a lot of engagement developing the national cyber strategy. Um, there's a member of my team who wrote uh, either two or three of the fundamental papers that underlie the national cyber strategy. So you know, DOE fingerprints are very much on that strategy and we're very aligned with the Office of National Cyber Director and Acting Director Walton, um, uh, you know, Walden, excuse me, to um, to really um, move forward, move out on the national cyber strategy. And we're looking forward to working with them on implementation. Uh, we are developing our own internal strategy, uh, updating our cybersecurity strategy and aligning that with the national cyber strategy. So, um, you know, there are a couple um, a couple things. So first of all, um, one of the initiatives within um, the National Cyber Strategy Implementation Plan is securing the clean energy, energy future. Um, and that includes uh, using secure by design principles um, and ensuring that the government's digital ecosystem um, can deliver on the United States government's um, clean uh, excuse me, clean energy future decarbonization uh, efforts. So um, that means um, that continued research and development capabilities at DOE. Um, so IHO National Lab is responsible for our secure by design uh, program and helping people understand how to do secure hardware by design. You know, we're getting better at doing secure software by design but they're really focusing on hardware software systems together. How do you make hardware and software both secure by design? Um, in addition, uh, you know, the, the principles that uh, of collective defense 
which underlie the cybersecurity strategy are incredibly important. Um, that, that concept uh, that um, we can't individually be safe, we have to work together. You know, once upon a time, you'd say, oh, you know, if, I, if my cybersecurity is better than the guy down the street, you know, they'll go down the street and forget about me. And we just can't do that. We're too interconnected. Um, there's too much the, there's too much work we do together. There's too many interconnections within our systems. We absolutely positively have to develop that collective defense. Um, in addition, part of that collective defense is ensuring that um, the burden of defense falls to those most able to deliver on that. And what I mean is um, government, large corporations should be trying to figure out how to defend us. Um, we shouldn't be expecting small companies, nonprofits, and individuals to carry the kind of burden we do now. Expecting an individual, whether it's you know a 15-year-old or an 80-year-old great-grandmother, um, to be able to understand um, how to secure their home network, how to secure their devices, um, that's just an unreasonable expectation. And so um, DOE is part of that solution, not only in terms of us protecting our infrastructure in DOE, us protecting uh, the national critical infrastructure, but also um, the fact that uh, DOE is part of the US government's new labeling system for the energy sector to provide labels to help understand um, whether devices follow cybersecurity principles. Now, I think that's going to be an interesting program to roll out because people have to understand what that means. Um, you can't take something and say, oh, it's got a secure label and that means I don't have to worry about it at all. I don't have to do anything. So we're gonna have an educational effort, but we are working uh, with the White House and others to, to roll out that capability. Um, so, you know, we are gonna continue our efforts um, to modernize our defenses as, a, as an enterprise, which is part of that, um, ensuring that we have um, all the best capabilities, the zero trust, uh, multi-factor authentication, encryption, all those things, as well as continuing to work with our national partners on that collective defense. So it's not just the energy sector, which my colleagues in CSER work with, um, or or the or our internal energy sector, which my team supports, but also um, those international partners, because um, that collective defense not only includes our own internal to the U.S., but also partners around the world who are going to work together to make this world safer. So those are the ways in which we think about uh, the national cyber strategy and how it's going to impact DOE going forward. Actually, I, I had a quick question, Anne, if I could just jump in. Uh, and it's fascinating because I, um, you know, this topic of um, kind of secure by design and the labeling strategy that you just mentioned, um, you know, and, and you, you may or may not be able to answer this question, but I'm curious, um, does the, do you think from an administration standpoint that we're going to see this as kind of a voluntary type of or almost of a mandatory, we're going to have to start labeling that? Or if you... If you can't answer that, that's fine as well. Just yeah, curious. I, I I don't know what I can't get in the heads of the White House, so I yeah. don't know what their intent is. Yeah. Um, there, but well, I don't know what the the um, uh, implementation is. The intent yes. is is help Americans be more secure, um, and how we do that uh, remains to be seen. There's some, you know, this is that program is its very early days. Yeah, but I love that. What I heard you say is it's your mission as a leader, as a government agency, to provide that guidance to our citizens. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of things that you said that I, I, I was like, I love the idea of the collective defense. Um, 
you touched on, I think you touched on something that you mentioned the first time I heard you say something about compliance a couple of years ago oh, yeah. yep. at CyberTech. Um, you said that organizations may be too focused on compliance, like let's just check that box, you know, um, and making them unwilling to take necessary risks. So has the new NCS affected this tendency? Has it made it better, worse? Yeah, so I'll give you, let me give you a little background on on the issue of compliance versus risk management. Um, so um, when I was first in the in the federal government uh, during the Obama administration, um, we were very very compliance focused. So we get this list of things from uh, you know the White House, from Congress, from whomever was sending them. I can't remember if this even existed at that point yet, um, but whoever is telling you what to do you get this list, right? And you got to check the boxes and do these things. And I was seeing very much a compliance mindset. I'm going to go check all the boxes and then I'm done. Um, and as I started towards the end of the time I was in the administration, people really started to understand that um, compliance does not equal risk mitigation. So it could, uh, but more than likely your risks don't nicely fit in that box of compliance. So it's important uh, to start looking at what's risk mitigation look like? And I was starting to see that. Um, and as all I was going, there became a much bigger sort of shift towards risk mitigation versus compliance. And then right when I arrived, you know, they just had the solar winds incident um, when I came back. And I was concerned that we were gonna see the shift back to compliance because now, and even then arguably, but even more so now, there are more things on the compliance checklist than people can do. I don't have enough time, money, or resources to do all the things in the compliance checklist. So if all I do is look at compliance, then I'm never even going to think about my risk because I'm just checking those boxes. So people need to look first at how to mitigate risk and then uh, figure out um, how to prioritize compliance within that framework. So it doesn't mean I'm not going to do any of those compliance things, but I may have things that I need to do to mitigate risk that don't check any of those compliance boxes. And I need to do those first before I complete that compliance exercise because that's really gonna be what mitigates my risk. Now, to be clear, most of those things for compliance are designed to mitigate risk, but you know, it's not a one size fits all. And that's where we get into trouble with people just looking at compliance. So that's that's sort of that big picture around that. And I think, you know, it's a challenge, but but I have to say I'm pleased that at least in the parts of the government I'm involved in, we haven't seen people sort of go back guardrail to guardrail and go, oh, we're going to do only compliance now. That people are still thinking about risk and risk mitigation, even when they're trying to fit in um, a lot of compliance that has to be done. Well, with compliance, I feel like this is a, a little bit of a thick question from me, but I'm just thinking about like, don't the agencies, aren't they mandated to meet compliances? So, like, I mean, they have to go down the list and check the box. So don't they have to do that first before they think about mitigating risk? I hear what you're saying. And is it, can they? Well, I, I suppose in theory, if you could do all the compliance activities and you had the time and money and resources, do all of them, you might say, well, I'll do those before I do risk mitigation. Um, but I don't have the time, money, and resources to do everything on the list of compliance. Some of the compliance items are literally technically not possible when you look at my OT and my research for por portfolio. Literally, some things I just can't do. It's technically not feasible. 
Um, there are also things where you go, okay, this instrument costs millions of dollars, sometimes billions of dollars. I am not going to throw that away and start again because I've got a compliance requirement. So what I'm going to do is risk mitigation, and I'm going to put compensating controls in place that meet the objectives of that compliance exercise, with, but it may not meet that compliance exercise on the face of it, right? So if you look at our scores on FISMA when they come out, they're not great. But I don't, and I don't, um, I don't like that, but I also recognize that they're not a true reflection of our security posture because mm -hmm. in all the places or virtually all the places where we're not in compliance, we have compensating controls in place. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky because DOE is full of lots of really smart engineers and scientists who um, understand security risk and um, uh, you know, are going to take action to deal with those regardless of whether someone tells them, here's a compliance exercise. But they will also tell me, well, I'm not going to do that the way they told me to because I can't afford to or it impacts my mission. But I do these other things that are going to compensate for that. And we all agree that, yes, those were the right compensating controls and we feel good about where we are. And that's that's fine. It's unlike, say, you know, I'll pick on HHS, which is not full of scientists and engineers. I don't have any I have no direct knowledge of their security posture, but I would tell you that it's got to be harder have a conversation with their workforce about security than is with mine. Um, so we're kind of lucky from that standpoint, but the reality is we can't do all the compliance. And so we absolutely have to look at risk to prioritize it. But I would argue that you should always look at your risk and balance that against your compliance exercises because number one, if you do all the compliance and then you start risk mitigation, you may be missing something big. But number two, um, because you probably don't have enough money to do all the compliance anyway. So you're doing the right thing rather than just checking the boxes. Yes, exactly. And, and I, and, and I don't not want to be clear. The boxes are important. They're there for a reason. They're a place to start. Yes. They add value, right. But they can't always be implemented as designed. You know, and, uh, you know, just to, to dovetail on that a little bit, and, and I'm no expert here, but I talk to a lot of agencies, and mm -hmm. it's um, mm -hmm. you know you know you run a very large energy is a is a huge agency, a um, lot of budget, a lot of a uh, lot of labs and so forth, just as HHS. But then you look at some of the smaller agencies. How, I, I I wonder like you start looking at some of the smaller agencies, mm -hmm. the independent agencies. <clears throat> have much, much less budget, much less resources mm -hmm. and people, just like you were saying, how do they even, yeah. how do they even approach that, this problem? You know, and some of them, it's actually easier because okay. some of them um, may not be well-resourced, but they just have enterprise IT. Um, and so securing enterprise IT is um, not necessarily easier, but it's, there's known solutions, right? Yeah. So, my solution for Office 365 is I'm going to hire Microsoft and they're going to do some things and then we'll do some other things. And we know how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge of how do you secure a nuclear power plant? Um, how do you secure um, a, a substation? Um, how do you uh, secure the NIF, which is where we did a fusion reaction uh, that created more energy than it used? Um, right, we've got user, we've got supercomputer user facilities all around the world, all around DOE, excuse me, they're used by people all around the world. So the complexity is higher, 
the resource level is higher, but the complexity is probably incrementally higher than the resources provided, if that makes sense. Um, now, some of those small departments and agencies, absolutely, they are so under-resourced, um, whether it's overall or just in IT, that they that they have the same problem we have. They can't get there because they don't have enough resources. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, if you look at scores or you look, or you have conversations with folks who are running small to medium organizations that primarily have enterprise IT, you know they're able to check a lot of the compliance boxes more easily because those compliance boxes are designed around their business. They're not their compliance boxes are not designed around Nash's mission in space or around my mission um, to generate a fusion reaction or to build the world's fastest supercomputer, you know, um, or to shoot light beams around a building, um, you know, to do basic science. So that's that's where it gets complicated. Makes total sense. All right. So um, just maybe shifting gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that Carolyn was really excited about this topic earlier, but I, I am also very interested in uh, the, the the whole concept around the partnership for uh, what is the transatlantic energy and climate cooperation. I want to mm -hmm. make sure I get that right. So that's the PTECC. Mm -hmm. um, do, so you, that, do you say that as a word like we do with our acronyms? PTEC. P -tech. P -tech. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. P tech. Got it. Thank you. I've learned something new. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, so I'm just curious, um, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier. So this is a DOE focused um, kind of area and, and you're supplying, it sounds like resources, um, tools uh, for, you know, to kind of build these secure, resilient, um, uh, climate conscious is the, the key here. Um, energy system. So can you maybe just tell me, because I, I'm learning here, um, and also the audience, uh, a, a little bit more about this off, the mission of your office here, and and maybe a little bit around the P-TECH, as, right. as I've learned here, partners, uh, maybe some success stories, key initiatives. Yeah, so um, let me tell you, yeah, tell you who, a little bit who P-TECH is. Um, my office's involvement is, is relatively new with P-TECH, but DOE, um, through our International Affairs Office, coordinates PTEC, and and you got it. I think you got it right. It's the Partnership for Transatlantic Energy and Climate Cooperation. And half the time, I can't remember what it is, um, so I get it. Um, and it's um, it were it's an international group of um, policymakers and civil society stakeholders uh, within Eastern and Central Europe. It is you look at it sort of primarily former Eastern Bloc countries, but it's not entirely former Eastern Bloc countries by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's 24 countries um, plus the EU. Um, and the goal is to, to support um, European-based energy security. So that is sec energy security in the, in the big sense of having sufficient energy and having homegrown energy and, you know, as opposed to just cybersecurity, but cybersecurity plays into that. And so um, they it, it's they interface with the EU's energy union framework um, and also what's called the Three Seas Initiative. And please don't ask me more questions about the Three Seas Initiative because <laughs> um, I can't answer them. Um, so and you know the countries in PTEC, I will not read you twenty four countries, but it's like everything from Albania to Ukraine. Um, so you know and and places like that you've probably been like Germany and places you probably haven't been like North Macedonia. So it's a big, a big mix. Um, and um, there's a place where there's technical, there's a lot of technical collaboration, um, which includes um, improving energy efficiency and clean energy deployment, 
you know, especially renewable energy. Um, but you know that includes nuclear energy, and it also includes carbon management. So how do we reduce carbon emissions? How do we um, uh, capture carbon? Things like that. Um, it is includes cyber energy cyber best practices. Um, it includes promoting capital investment in energy infrastructure. Um, includes climate impacts. So uh, predicting climate impacts, risk mass, risk mapping, and um, also adaptation planning because we know that unfortunately we're going to have to do some adaptation. Um, and then they, we also do analysis and vulnerability assessments for electricity and natural gas. So that's sort of the background. Um, so here's some things PTEC does, some of which my office has been involved in. They, um, you know, went with the um, unwarranted uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, there were a number of things that happened. One of which was PTEC worked together to create a energy plan for the winter for Moldova, for Moldova, I can't even pronounce country names, Moldova, um, because uh, like many um, countries in Europe, they relied upon the Russians for gas. Um, and so, um, you know, as you recall, last winter, um, I guess it was technically winter before last now, was a little dicey at times, and last winter uh, as well. Thankfully, it was a mild winter um, because there was a lot of, of concern about the the loss of, of um, natural gas from Russia and oil from Russia through the winter. Um, and so Moldova was one of the places they worked directly with on that. Um, they've also done cybersecurity workshops in Croatia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. We are now working with the Poles. My office is working with the Poles um, and uh, Lithuanians to put together some exercises that um, uh, we can uh, do a red team a blue team exercise with them. And then we're going to do a train the trainer and then that will be their exercise that they will use to train others in the region. So it's a capacity building exercise where not only do we teach them, but we all, and they're actually pretty good um, in terms of cybersecurity. They're really good partners, but we give them some more skills and then we give them the skills to share those with others in the region. Um, and then another example of things that PTEC did uh, through our offices uh, at DOE, was uh, electric grid vulnerability assessments for Montenegro um, as they were looking at uh, overall resilience. So, you know, that project I just talked about that my office is doing is something that we announced at PTEC and Zagreb this past year. And, you know, we're hoping to get that um, delivered by um, early uh, 2024. So that's uh, that's what we're looking for um, in terms of that project. So that's that's PTEC um, and it's a, it's a very important it's very important to the U.S. It's very important to DOE, and um, we continue to build our relationships with our European partners and help them um, not only um, with uh, energy grid resilience, with clean energy, um, but also with um, uh, helping them manage and maintain control of their natural resources um, uh, in Europe. Do any of those efforts translate or do we implement any of that here in the US or is it really just helping those European countries with the sustainability and the cybersecurity? Well, much of what we do with our European partners is is either is modeled on work we're doing here in the US. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, there's grid resilience, there's a lot of work in DOE labs around grid resilience. They do a lot of modeling. Um, and so um, we can then take those models, whether it's, 
a list of cybersecurity controls you should put in place or um, uh, new technology to help you manage grid failures. Um, you know, those things come from our research at DOE. They get implemented in the U.S. and they get implemented in Europe, sometimes maybe not in that order, um, but they certainly um, uh, do. One of the fascinating things for me is not a P-TECH country, it's Portugal. Portugal's grid is 60% renewables. I was at one of our labs and I was talking about their model and they said, I said, well, what point, in re what, what, what point does your model say the grid starts to have problems? And they said 28%. So they're modeling, they're at less than 28% renewables in our grid. We're, we're well under 28%. They're modeling the grid and saying at 28%, we have challenges and we need to think about how we can um, manage renewables better. You know, this is, this is about, well, how do I handle that transition from daylight to darkness? Um, you know, how do I store energy, things like that, that we're trying to figure out. Well, Portuguese are already at 60%. So here's an opportunity for us to learn from Portugal about how they got their grid to 60% renewables and it's stable. And they're going so to 80%. We say we struggle, or Portugal says they struggled with the renewable energy at 28%, which no, is- our lab is we modeling do. Okay, our okay. grid. Our <gasps> lab is modeling our grid and saying at 28%, yeah. our model starts to run into trouble. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're at 60 already. So there is something to learn from our partners in Europe, uh, at least in Portugal, about how they're managing their grid at 60% renewables already. Right. So this is not a one-way U.S. has all the answers and we tell our international partners how to do things. Um, this is very much a two-way street of learning from each other. How can you manage a grid at such a high level of renewables? How can we learn from that? Um, and, you know, how can we help you with some of your other problems? So that's yeah. It's a, it's a, it, there's a reason it's a partnership and not a, you know, a push, right? And like I said, Portugal is not a peak tech country, um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a great example. And there are other examples in peak tech countries of how they have been able to harness different types of resources that we have not. Yeah, and a great example. I mean, we really are a global community. It's, mm -hmm. it's not just their problem, our problem, it's exactly. our problem. So as you work on your modernization efforts, um, we you've already touched on DOE works on not normal stuff, you know. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, how important is public-private partnerships for DOE? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because DOE is by definition a public-private partnership, right? Our labs, our private sector labs. Mm -hmm. um, they're primarily not-for-profit. I mean, Battelle runs, um, I think it's eight labs. Uh, they, Brian keeps telling me and I keep forgetting how many it is, but I think it's eight. Um, they're a nonprofit. Uh, universities run several more. So, um, but it is in fact a private sector partnership with DOE that is part of DOE, um, as are many of our contractors who run our labs, plants, and sites. Um, but, you know, here, you know, there are a few things that um, are hugely important in, in public-private sector, the uh, public-private partnerships we'll talk about, one of which is workforce development. Um, so I firmly believe that um, we need pathways to move people in between the private and public sectors, and we need to make it easier for people to cycle between those places uh, over the course of their career, to leave government, to come back to government, and, and to learn from each other. Um, and also um, for the government, uh, through DOE and through other places, to help build a workforce within the government looks like America, and then to help the rest of America grow their workforce capabilities. Um, 
we've we've got a variety of, of programs in DOE, including our Omni Internship Alliance, which my office funds with the Office of Science and NSA, which is designed to bring uh, students in for three summers and let them see different parts of the federal government, ultimately with the goal of them choosing uh, to work for the government uh, or for a private lab that serves the government when they graduate. Um, you know, another huge area of, of public-private partnership for us is knowledge sharing. And a lot of that obviously is in cybersecurity, but, you know, I just talked about another example, which is, you know, hey, how are you getting your grid up to 60% renewables? We need to learn from you. Um, so it's that knowledge sharing with international partners, with the U.S. interagency and with the private sector. Um, you know, the labs do a tremendous amount of work that is given to the public. Um, and whether that's individuals or corporations um, that people can um, pick up and use um, to, their, to, to improve um, their cybersecurity resiliency, um, their, their sustainability, um, whatever that may be. And so that, that sharing among the labs, plants, and sites and with the public um, is incredibly important. And then, you know, our collaboration on research and development between DOE, between the public sector, uh, excuse me, between the private sector within our own, our own organization and then other private sector uh, companies. You know, DOE doesn't just do work for DOE or even just for the government. Um, I just had lunch with, with uh, a colleague who said, oh, our company is doing you know, a few hundred million dollars worth of research with DOE. It's like, oh, a few hundred million. Yeah, that's nothing. Um, so, you know, they, they are, we have university research, we have private sector research, we do research for other governments, companies outside the U.S. All that collaboration uh, is growing our capabilities, you know, across a vast array of things, including, you know, cybersecurity and advanced wireless. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the other thing I would just say is that uh, from a partnership standpoint, um, DOE is trying to be as, as transparent and visible uh, in our community as possible. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that people do understand what DOE does, because I don't think most people do, um, and um, that we're able to share that uh, knowledge and capability um, throughout the U.S. So, um but yeah, I mean, DOE is basically built on public-private partnership. That's that's what we do. So, and just uh, a quick question. I think uh, we we've talked in the past. I, I may have even brought this up, but um, you know, I, I from a, a, a an industry perspective, I am you know a hundred percent in agreement, violent agreement with you on the importance of public-private partnerships. And I'm, I'm curious though, you know, and we talked a lot about, you've talked about cyber and all these places where we can, we and AI I know is another big one where, where we're seeing a lot more partnership, but, you know, from your perspective, you know, from a, you know, from a government perspective, where do you see some places we can improve also, you know, just talking to me as industry, talking to me as, you know, uh, a representative uh, of a of a sector here? What what can you advice can you give me that I can take back? Well, you know, unfortunately, I think there is still this um, attitude that is prevalent among a lot of people, not everybody, that the private sector has all the answers and government doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, I think the reality is that you have answers and we have answers and we need to work together to solve problems. And so um, that's the biggest message that I would put out there um, is, uh, you know, that that 
um, we've got to work together to solve problems and that neither one of us has all the answers. And so the more that we can share that information with people, um, you know, nothing gets me more uh, hot under the collar than someone, you know, making some snide remark when something's not going well about, oh, there's the government at work. Mm. Um, you know, it, our government does amazing things. Is it perfect? No. Uh, right. Do we have a lot of stuff we could do better? Yes. We do amazing things um, for the public and our and our public servants work under incredibly ridiculous conditions at sometimes, right? It's just the thing, the burdens we put on people, how hard we make it to get something done. Um, I had someone who worked for me at Santa Clara County uh, who was like, oh, I can't, I'm not good enough for the private sector. I'm like, are you kidding me? She goes to the private sector, gets a job, and she's just knocking it out of the park because she's like, this is easy. I mean, I just said I'm putting a purchase order and I got this thing and I could go do it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the public sector is the private sector is not a cakewalk we all know that but some of the barriers you have in the private sector assuming the public sector are just just melt away right you got different challenges and different problems but some of those barriers to getting stuff done aren't there and you see people just fly right. and so i made a short story really long but my point is to answer your question is we've both got things we bring to the party and we need to work together to to um demonstrate that and i think on both sides we can be equally critical of the other and lose track of the fact that both sides bring value. So thank you. Um, thank you so much for that, that uh, candid answer, because, you know, from my perspective, and I've been doing this for a little while, I won't tell you how long, but I, I've been doing it for a little while. And, you know, I have always looked at it. It's just about the perspective that we approach problems from, because from an industry standpoint, we're we're motivated by revenue. We're motive. We have shareholders we're beholden to, and so forth. Where you know, where I always try to explain because I think to your point, I hear these things a lot of times too, and how kind of people talk about the government mm -hmm. and and so forth. I'm like, you realize that that is where a lot of this starts. A lot of the pure research because it is not often in the in, in industry's best interest to spend yeah. a lot of money, a lot of resources on pure research for the sake of research. Right. You know, the things that you're doing at energy, the things like I'm so fascinated, like the national ignition facilities and things like that. Why are you doing that? There is mm -hmm. no, you know, it is for the future. You're, you're right. looking at investment 20, 30 years down the road. Industry is not going to invest that kind of money for something that might not bear fruit for 40 years. That is correct. Yeah, so. exactly. Mm -hmm. But the reason industry goes fast is what you just said. They got to make money at the end of the day. Yeah. Exactly. So that drives to a solution that drives to solving a problem and that's good too right so you need the people who have that really long game and you yeah. need the people who are looking for tomorrow you know when i worked at hp uh we had hp labs right they did whatever the heck they wanted to basic research applied research occasionally a product would pop out of there but that it you know we had the luxury of basically operating kind of like a national lab not a lot of countries companies excuse me have that luxury anymore. Um, and so you need DOE, you need NASA, you need NIH, um, all these things of the government if you want to advance science and if you want to compete, keep us globally competitive, that's where it's coming from. So net, net, that's why we've got to work together. That's yeah. really what comes Well, and it's so interesting, and to hear you say that DOE is an industry government partnership, that's the model. Right. And it's not us and them, which often like you just said that. And I'm like, yeah, we do. 
we say that a lot. We think of it a lot as the government is, is them. And then here we are as us and your model at DOE is we're, we're a global community. We're, right. we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. so. Very much so. Yes. Well, time has beaten us. Um, so as, as usual, um, I would like to ask you just one quick, fun question. What's the last thing that you listened to, read, or watched just for fun? I mean, do you even have time to do that? <laughs> well, yeah, so I, I do because, uh, you know, my, there's a couple of things. One is I, I listen to podcasts like whenever, you know, people come to my office like, are on the phone. I'm like, no, I just got a podcast going in the background. I probably don't, I, you know, I know well enough to know I'm not truly multitasking, so I don't catch it all. But if I'm in the car or whatever, I hear the whole thing. And then when I'm working out, I watch TV. So I just, I, I am in the middle of watching the Hungarian Grand Prix. It's, I'm on lap 40 something out of 70. So tonight I'll get to see who won. Unfortunately, I think I probably know, but that's, you know, it's <laughs> another story. Dan, darn Max for stopping. Anyway, um, but uh, I, uh, I, what I, I like competition and he's sort of been winning all the races this year. I like it to be a little more mixed up. Um, and then I was just listening to um, actually a, a good friend of mine on a podcast. Uh, he's the director of the National Postal Museum. I just finished listening to the episode uh, earlier today where Elliot was talking about his ma museum on a, on, a, on a podcast. And so I was just listening to, the, to, to that and I just sent a note to Elliot saying what a great job I thought you did on the podcast. So yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, every minute it sort of drives people crazy because every minute I'm trying to do something because there's not enough hours in the day. My, you know, people are like, so do you actually sit and do nothing? I'm like, no, I never do. There's too much to do. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what I assumed, but I'm um, Hungarian Grand Prix. Yes. Yes. Oh, Formula right. one. Formula one. Yes. All right. Formula one. All right. Well, Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Um, thank you to our audience for tuning in. Smash that like button, share this episode, and we'll talk to you next time on Tech Transforms. Thanks so much, Anne. Thank you. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.